Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here this morning. My name is Josh Keller. I'm a pastor at All Saints Presbyterian Church for about 11 years. I know many of you by face and by name, and it's good to see you and to be with you again this morning. It's been maybe a couple of years or so since I preached here with you and and to you, and it's a delight to help out on Tim's sabbatical. Um, Our kids... uh, my wife's name is Aaron, and we have three kids, Elliot, Oliver, and Addie. And they're at Valor, right down here in South Austin. And um, their orthodontist is Dr. Ainsley. They, their teeth are looking great. Thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate that. You got to. Our text this morning is going to be Matthew chapter 13. And then if you turn there, we're going to read verses 24 through 30. And also go down and read verses 36 through 43 where Jesus explains the parable. And then after we read that, we'll pray. Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Well then, what do you want us to do? Go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. And continuing down at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He has ears to hear. Let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come now to your word, we do ask that you would send your spirit among us, among my words, among our hearts, as we meditate upon your word, that you might illumine your word to us, that we might understand it, that we might be changed by your words to us, by the power of your spirit. So Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, several years ago at All Saints... I was sitting in the conference rooms probably about a year or so after our building was built with a group of people in our church who had gathered together because one of the members of this group had gone off the deep end. He was severing all of his relationships. He was ruining his marriage. He was slandering all the people in that group, other people in the church, and manipulating and guilt-tripping all the people around him to get the things that he wanted. And it seemed like he was getting away with all of it. I remember in that group sitting there, we read Psalm 37, which says, Do not fret yourself because of evildoers, for they will soon fade 
like the grass. To commit your way to the Lord and trust in him and the Lord will act. And he will bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. I think it was comforting to the people that were sitting there. But there was still a question that was pervading over the entire room. Because there's one word from Psalm 37 that I didn't read there. And that word is soon. The psalmist David writes that I will soon bring forth your righteousness as the light. And I think all the people in that room were wondering, well, when is this soon going to happen? They were wondering, when are you going to do something, God, about this injustice? About this wrongness? And I know many of you have felt and do feel and do think that exact same thing this morning. I know you've had similar questions. Perhaps the summary of you watched the movie Sound of Freedom. I saw the statistics at the end of the movie about human trafficking. 50 million human beings enslaved in trafficking in the world today. 2 million of them children specifically in sex trafficking. The United States is the number one destination for trafficked children. Perhaps you saw that evil and other injustices and evils in your own life in this country. The war in Ukraine opioid fentanyl crisis school shooting political injustices and you want justice to happen you desire it to come you want the wrong things to end and you want it to happen soon and you keep asking why is god seemingly so slow to act you may have wondered whether or not jesus is promised to return and fix all these things and bring justice well where is he when is his coming When is this thing that we're waiting for? Or is it just always the same as it has always been? Which is one of the complaints that Peter addresses in 2 Peter. Where the people of the church were saying, this is just like it's always been. It's like a history is just a cycle. Bad things happening. There is no change. There is no difference. History is on repeat. Why don't you resign yourself to sort of nihilistic approach? Nothing matters anyway. Well, that's the question I'd like to address with you this morning from Matthew 13 and also later from 2 Peter. So what our parable addresses, and I think I would like to go, or I will go through three things to address that question. Perception, patience, and promise. Perception, patience, and promise. Jesus makes it clear here in our parable from Matthew 13 that this parable of the wheat and weeds is about God's final justice. His final judgment, the... The harvest, the explanation, the second half, verses 36 through 43, is an explanation there that the good seed is the children of the kingdom of God. It is sown by Him, by the Son of Man, that the field is God's world that they are in, and the weeds come from the evil one. Who is, and the harvest, of course, at the end, is the day of judgment for everyone and also for the world. But you notice that the parable that Jesus tells in verses 24 through 30, the focus of that parable is on the servants. It's on the servants' desire for the master's immediate action when they are stunned to find out that even though that the son of man, that the good master has sown all this good seed into the field, somehow there are weeds in the field. So they want to pull things up. What should we do, master? Can we go pull up all these weeds? And what they find instead is the master's slowness when he finds these weeds among his wheat. Older translations of the parable, I don't know if you were reading from the ESV like I was, but older translations of the Bible, the word here for weed is not the word weed, actually, it's the weed, the word tear. And that word is a Greek word called darnel, 
And a tear is a weed that when it grows up, at the very beginning, when you see a tear or a darnel growing, it looks, before it comes to maturity, it looks exactly like a wheat. And so what Jesus is saying here is that they find out that there are darnels or tares among the wheat. And they look very close to each other. And at the beginning, before the weeds come to maturity, you cannot perceive what they're going to become when you see them at the beginning as tares. So the first reason for the master's slowness here in verse 29, he says, he says, no, do not act because in pulling out the things that look like wheat, you may wrongly pull up what is actually wheat. When I was on staff at Park City's Presbyterian Church many years ago in Dallas, after I'd finished seminary, I, I used to do, there's a big half-price books on Highway 12, on Luke 12 up there. I used to love to stop by and just browse, especially the religious section, and just find any books that might be on sale. I remember one time I was there, there was a tall older man who was sort of hovering around in the religious book section, and kind of standing in the back, and had this mopey Eeyore look about him, and just looked very sad, and was sort of mumbling to himself the whole time. And I couldn't quite hear him, but you could tell that he was speaking loud enough so that I was supposed to hear him, but I was not supposed to know what he was saying. And it was kind of slightly disturbing and very annoying and eventually i just turned around and asked him that if can i help you find something in this section and he said i don't know i don't know i just don't know about all this jesus stuff i said oh so i began to speak with him he started telling me about his experiences in the vietnam war about his divorce death of one of his children and how people in his life kept pointing him to jesus as the solution to his problems and he said that he wanted to believe but he had this question from the Bible that all the Christians that he had talked to previously in his life were unable to answer for him. And I thought, two things. The first thought was, well, how would I judge this guy? The second thought I had was, well, you've come to the right place. <laughs> you found a pastor in the religious section. How convenient. How wonderful. But I thought, oh, this man wants Jesus. And I first thought that he didn't want anything. He was disruptive. But what he really wanted was to know Jesus. And so we sat down and he got out a Bible. And he asked the question of me. And it was Matthew chapter 5. Where Jesus says, If anyone would force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And then he said to me, You believe the Bible, right? And I said, Yes. And he looked at me in the eyes and he said, Well, give me your computer bag and the keys to your car. And I'll become a Christian. And I looked at him and he said, But I bet you're just like all the rest. You're not a real Christian. You don't really care about me. And then he got nasty. Started manipulating me. Guilt tripping me. And I realized that this guy was, he was really just a con man. He had lured me in with his hard luck story. Implied he wanted Jesus. Implied that I was the only one who could handle his questions and bring him to saving faith. That he desperately wanted that. And then overloaded me with guilt if I even just balked at the things that he was asking me. Or even asked questions about them. And he was quite good at it. And we talked for several hours, about two hours in the store. And in the end, I think I said, well, if you really want to become a Christian, you have to deal with the real Jesus who already gave up everything for you, his very life for you. But when I left, I was so overwhelmed with the guilt that he had put on me that I cried in my car for quite a while. But then after that, I began to get angry. I got angry that he had tried to do that to me. And I got angry that if he had tried to do that on some sweethearted grandmother who had been, you know, in half-priced books at the same time, living on a pension, giving all that she had to this man. See, I thought I had perceived someone who was about to receive the word of God with joy. 
who was excited to come into the kingdom of God, but instead, I met a weed. But here's the thing. Even that statement and my perception of that is still flawed. Because I don't know where that man is now. And did God use our conversation to bring him to faith? I do not know. I pray that that is so, but I, we cannot see what God might be doing or when he might be doing something in another person's life. Often we want God to act, to judge this con man, for example, to judge other people in our lives that we know that have done wrong or injustice or judge others outside of us that we know are clearly doing things that are unjust. We want God to act because we are certain of how God needs to act. Like these servants in the parable. Well, let's do this. Let's start ripping up the tares. But we don't perceive well. It's kind of like we're standing in the middle of this wheat field. And from where we are standing, this section over here, looks like it isn't producing any fruit at all. The wheat is short. It's not very strong. It's not very sturdy. It looks like it's not a very full harvest. And we wonder why it is not producing But what we don't realize is that wheat over there is actually just in a valley. And from our perspective, if we walked over there into the valley, we would see that the wheat being produced over there is actually more plentiful than the wheat that's being produced where I was standing. Or we look over here in this corner, and everything looks dead and dry, and there's just barely a couple of kernels of wheat, but that's where the irrigation doesn't hit. And so it's miraculous that there's any wheat being grown over there at all. And everything around me, perhaps, we look at and we say, this looks lovely and healthy, all the wheat in this part of the field, but that might just be because it looks like and reminds me of myself. But God sees the whole field at once, from all eternity. And only He can perceive that what looks to us like tares will actually be revealed as wheat. So God's apparent inactivity is actually instead God's patience. Peter, who was here hearing this parable being told, and maybe was one of the ones here in verse 36 who asked Jesus to explain the parable of the weeds of the wheat. That might be Peter. That's sort of Peter's MO to do things and be bold and ask questions. But if you turn to 2 Peter here, 2 Peter, the same Peter who was here for this parable wrote this letter. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, I want to read to you some words because you can almost hear Peter's remembering this parable and everything that Jesus spoke to him as he answers those doubting uh, that he was writing to here in Second Peter, whether or not Jesus was ever going to return and bring justice and establish the new heavens and the new earth. If you begin here in chapter 3, verse 1, this is Peter writing. He says, Now is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of remembrance, reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through our apostles Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And this is what their scoff is, verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's that sort of nihilistic resignation. History is just a cycle. That was what Peter was reacting to. Now skip down here to verse 8. Verse 8. Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter here, you can almost hear the things that he learned from that parable in Matthew 13. He says here in verse 8 that God operates on a different time scale than we do. He is eternal. He both sees every day as a thousand years worth of moments, and at the same time he sees thousands of years as one full day in an age. And so in verse 9 he says, what feels like slowness to us, or inaction by God, is Him actually acting from eternity, outside of time. We tend to see God's inaction or indifference, or His lack of, His inaction or His slowness as indifference. Or as lack of care. But notice what Peter says here in 2 Peter. It's the exact opposite point. Peter says that God is slow in acting for the exact reason that he cares. He will not pull up or uproot too early. Because he doesn't want any to perish. What feels like slowness is actually God's patience. There's an essential pronoun here in verse 9. Did you catch it? We tend to think that God is being slow in order to turn weeds into wheat, like perhaps this con man that I met in the bookstore, and that is true. But Peter says here that God's patience is also towards you. Second person, plural here, you. And he is writing, remember, to a church. So he's saying God's patience is to you, to me, to us. His delay is not simply to produce new wheat, but to allow those already made wheat by faith to bear fruit. Good fruit, the good works of love we were, as Ephesians said, prepared before the world to do. Matthew 13, when the Master says he doesn't want to root up the wheat along with the weeds, it isn't just mistaking wheat for weeds or tares, but also because our roots are all entangled together. I remember working one summer with my brother pulling weeds. Uh, the summer was not, I grew up in Kansas, the summer was not as hot as it is here this summer. But as you can imagine, any job that involves pulling up weeds for money during the summer, even as a teenage boy, robust and healthy, was a horrible job to have during the summer. It was my dad's uh, company that he worked for, and in front of the building there was a large rose garden that was all rockscaped. And so we had to go in and pull up all the weeds so that you could just see the beautiful rose bushes that were there. Now I remember I grabbed a large weed once that was right next to a rose bush. And as I pulled it up, the rose bush right next to it came up too, roots and all, right onto the ground, flopping onto the rocks. And I was just angry. I grabbed this weed, I threw it over there, I grabbed the rose bush, I shoved it back down in the hole and threw some dirt back onto it, and I thought, this will be fine. But when we came back the next week, of course, that rose bush was dead. It had died. It was no longer producing roses and fruit. It's easy for us to condemn others. The man that God acts to root them up, but we don't always appreciate that God's judgment always goes down to the root. And our roots are entangled. Or let me say it this way. Human sex trafficking, and pornography, and slavery is simply the fruit of lust and greed that is rooted in the human heart. And war Physical abuse, the desecration of beautiful, those things exist because envy and anger is its root. And our roots in the human heart 
All of us are entangled. And God is patient because He's working all the way down to the root in your heart and in mine. And He is slow because He has to distangle the roots so as not to destroy the fruit that He wants to produce in your life and in mine. So God is slow that all that is true wheat might be perceived. And He is patient to get down to the root of the problem. Then does His delay mean that justice is sort of secondary to Him? That doesn't matter as much to Him. The justice and judgment for evil is less important to Him than kindness and love. Is that what His slowness or inaction also implies? But the truth is, you should know this, that God, of course, has already acted. The cross is the crux of God's divine justice and divine judgment. And at the cross, God doesn't ignore justice. He doesn't downplay it. But instead, He brings that judgment first upon Himself instead of you and instead of me. In other words, in the words of Matthew 13 in our parable, He decides to become weeds that you and I might become wheat. The cross is actually a promise that God takes justice far more seriously than you and I do. God paid the full justice for your evil and for mine all the way down to the root in Jesus' death upon the cross. And Jesus says, or God says in Isaiah 55, that my ways are not your ways. It is not love over justice. It is not justice over love. It is at the cross where love and justice cosmically, perfectly are joined together. So that for anyone and for everyone, The only shelter from judgment that is coming and cannot be avoided is in the shadow of the divine justice and the divine love and grace of the cross. And the cross is also then a promise that God takes justice seriously. Peter talks about it as the day of the Lord here in his letter, or what Jesus refers to as the harvest in Matthew 13, this final judgment. When Jesus Christ will judge all things at the completion of, of what Christ began at the cross. And because His first act of judgment was His loving, self-giving death upon the cross, we can trust that His judgment at the end of time, at the harvest, will also be saturated with mercy and with grace. That it won't be vindictive, but absolutely true, absolutely just, and absolutely right. As Peter says here in verse 10, of 2 Peter chapter 3, at the very end, that the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. When everything's exposed, you see as it really, actually, truly is. And God is saying through Peter that on the day of judgment, everything will be exposed and will be obviously true and obviously right. Or another way of saying that is this, that no one gets away with anything. No one. And you need to know that were wrongs done to you and then they were hidden, God sees them. Do evils and injustices escape the law? They do not escape the sight of God. And a day is coming, not when expected, for a thief comes in an unexpected time, of course, but a day is coming when judgment arrives and when the harvest comes. There's a scene in The Sound of Freedom. Uh, I don't know if you saw that movie or not, but it's based on the real-life actions of a man named Tim Ballard who fought sex trafficking with the Department of Homeland Security and 
And it's based on something that actually happened in his life. In the movie, Ballard sets up a sting with a bunch of traffickers on an island off the coast of Colombia. And the traffickers bring 50 children who are being trafficked to the island. And right at the moment where the traffickers think that they are getting away with everything, that they're succeeding with their plot and with the evil that they're doing, when they feel like they are safe and secure, suddenly the police show up and arrest them all. Like a thief in the middle of the night. God's judgment will come. And no one gets away with anything. And God is far angrier at the desecration of His image bearers than you or I could be. And do not doubt that He will bring His justice for that evil. So that's true. Then what are we to do? Do we just sit around and do nothing? Do we just trust that God is eventually going to act and just sort of be like, well, I'm just going to let things go on as they will? Notice what Peter says here in verse 11, chapter 3. He says, uh, really, since this judgment is coming, what sort of lives should we live? A sort of rhetorical question. He says lives of holiness and godliness. Lives fit for the presence of God. That's what holiness is, right? And also with the character of God. That's what godliness is. So that the fruits of love, joy, peace, and patience, forgiveness, truth, self-control, faithfulness, these things, Peter says in verse 12, he says they hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? They hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. Does that mean that there's sort of this forcing of Christ to return by the good things that we do in submission to Him, the fruit produced with the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we can force God as a sort of causal relationship between the things that we do and Christ's return? Well, I don't think that that's what Paul, Peter is talking about here. But he says, really, I think it's more related to this, that we make the field, remember the field is the world in Matthew 13, we make the field ready for the harvest. In Matthew 13, we can focus on the weeds in the harvest, in that parable, as a negative thing, as a warning. Become wheat. Make sure that you turn to Christ and don't become a weed. And certainly that's true. But notice the comfort of the words of verse 43 in Matthew 13. It is that... Well, let me read it to make sure I don't say it wrongly. He says, Then the righteousness will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That is a hopeful expectation, a joyful vision of what the day of judgment looks like. But here's the thing. When we think about harvest, in this context, we see negatively as if that is only a bad thing, the day of warning and judgment. But what actually happens at a harvest time? You know, most of us are not connected in the agricultural world anymore. We're not involved in a harvest. But generally, a harvest normally is a time of joy. The focus is on a field that is ripe with food and fruit, ready to be received and to be eaten and to be shared and to be rejoiced in. The farmer delights to bring in the feed, to bring in the fruit on the day of harvest and feast with it. And that is the biblical picture, of course, of what the end is like. That Peter's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation 21, verse 24, it says that the kings of the world will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth, and offer the works of their life in righteousness to God the Father as an offering to Him in joy. That is the time of the harvest. God's people are bringing the fruit of their lives into God's presence to feast with Him forever. In the real story of Tim Ballard, to save an enslaved girl, he has to leave, actually, the DHS. He has to leave his pension on the table so that he's not going to get paid his pension in his retirement. And he has to go in without the protection of the United States government militarily. It says when he had to make this decision about whether he was going to go in, 
and do the sting operation. And he knew that he was going to lose out on his pension, his job, and the protection. His vision of the future was dark. If I do this, what is going to happen? And he spoke with his wife, and his wife said, Can you really stand before God at the end of time and say you could have gone, but you decided not to? And he said when his wife said those words to him, suddenly the vision became reversed. Suddenly the vision that, of what his future would be outside of the DHS, outside of all those things, without his pension, was no longer dark anymore, but crystal clear. And suddenly not doing that became dark as a way of darkness. And so he decided to go and do what was the fruit that God had made for him to bear in his life. I don't know what that fruit is for you sitting here this morning. What fruit God has to bear in your life, in His world, for the day of harvest. Perhaps it is, like Tim Ballard, to get into the fight with human trafficking, but maybe just loving your neighbor this afternoon. Or giving sacrificially to advance God's kingdom instead of your own. Or patiently caring for an ailing spouse who cannot care for themselves. Or maybe just treating your sibling with respect and love that they deserve. There is fruit for each of us that God is calling us to bear. What is yours? In a moment here, John's going to come up and lead us to the table of the Lord. And every week, in a real sense, in a symbolic sense, we bring the fruit of our lives of the past week to God here in worship. And we offer them up to Christ as the true, right, good, and holy judge. And then we feast with Him at this table. And it prepares us for the day of His coming so that when He comes, someone united to Jesus by faith and through baptism, it will be a surprise. But it will be a surprise of joy. For now the real feast is about to begin. Where nothing will be out of place. Where the roots are only good. Where the weeds have all been dealt with. So let's hasten the coming day of our Lord by filling the field of His world with the good fruit that He's prepared for us to do. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would enable us to walk forward into your world and cooperation with you and your spirit and with your word, that we might produce the fruit that you've called for us to produce. For the world began, the good works that you have produced, prepared for us to do. As we come to the table now, Father, I do pray that we would receive from you the goodness of your love and grace, and that we might go out from this place and hope and trust in you and your ultimate justice and righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.